Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Corinne Pettit, and joining me today for a discussion about difficult-to-treat forms of psoriasis, such as palmoplantar psoriasis and generalized pustular psoriasis, is dermatologist Dr. Christina Callis-Duffin, who is a professor of dermatology and chair of the Department of Dermatology at the University of Utah. Dr. Duffin's clinical focus is in the care of patients with psoriasis. She has participated in over 50 clinical trials for the development of new psoriasis therapies. Dr. Duffin is currently the president of GRAPA, which is the Group for Research and Assessment of Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis, and is also vice chair of the medical board of the National Psoriasis Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Duffin. It's really an honor to have you on SoundBites. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. So I'll start our discussion by first asking what the word pustular means and what types of pustular psoriasis exist. The word pustular means that there are pustules involved in the eruption. So when I say there's pustular psoriasis, it means that the patches or plaques of psoriasis have little blisters, which we call pustules, that have white fluid instead of clear fluid. So a blister, say from friction, will have clear fluid. A pustule has white fluid. And it's largely because there are white blood cells, which are a result of inflammation in that blister. Pustular psoriasis actually encompasses several different types of psoriasis. There are two kind of ways of thinking about this. The first is generalized psoriasis and the other is localized. So localized means that it's just localized to either a plaque or an area of the body. And generalized just means that it's widespread, that it's generalized over the whole body. So let's talk about the first type of pustular psoriasis you mentioned called generalized pustular psoriasis, which is also known as GPP. How would you define GPP and how prevalent is this type of psoriasis? GPP is considered a very different variant of psoriasis in that it is kind of a syndrome. So patients who have generalized pustular psoriasis as a syndrome are usually patients who who will develop kind of abrupt onset of bright red patches on their skin with many pustules within those patches. And it can be fairly abrupt in onset, very severe. It can create what looks like a sepsis picture. So people who get GPP flares can can seem like they are septic with an infection. It's actually, fortunately, fairly uncommon. And it is also familial. Some, it runs in some families. There's two other subtypes of pustular psoriasis that are generalized. One is called subacute annular, and this generally occurs in children. And subacute just means that it's not usually as acute. It's not usually severe. It can be more chronic, and it generally doesn't land people in the hospital. The second subtype is pustular psoriasis of pregnancy or GPP of pregnancy, which has also been called over the years impetigo herpetiformis, which isn't 
it's not impetigo and it's not herpes. It is just a bad name for generalized pustular psoriasis of pregnancy where patients will develop their outbreak, obviously, during pregnancy. So what causes generalized pustular psoriasis? Are there any common triggers? I've heard that a withdrawal from potent topical steroids could be a trigger. We don't really know in any one person why they have GPP, but there are a number of reasons why people can have it. First of all, there are definitely genes that increase the risk of acquiring it. Only about a decade ago, there were a number of families who were identified who had a familial version of GPP, meaning that runs in families. And it is a certain kind of familial risk called autosomal recessive, which means that you have to have two genes that are mutated, one from each parent. And when that happens, when you have two abnormal genes, then it puts you at risk for having generalized pustular psoriasis. The reason is that when that gene is mutated, the body cannot make a protein called a cytokine, which normally interrupts certain pathway. So basically prevents inflammation from happening. And if you have a mutation in that gene, you can't prevent it from happening. And the end result is this form of generalized pustular psoriasis. Now, not everybody with GPP will have that autosomal recessive genetic variation. It can happen randomly. And when people have this either genetic or non-genetic version of it, it can be triggered by certain things. Those certain things include infection, so strep, and certain viral infections will often trigger GPP. Various medications have been identified as triggering GPP, for example, certain antibiotics, antifungals, and various other medications can trigger it. And probably the most common trigger for GPP is actually either systemic corticosteroid, meaning oral steroids like prednisone or prednisolone or IV steroids, and even intramuscular steroids, what we call triamcinolone or Kenalog, can trigger a pustular eruption. Most commonly, when people have that steroid-induced eruption, it's after they start to taper it. So they'll take prednisone, they may even just have regular plaque psoriasis. They'll take prednisone, and as they taper it, then they can trigger a generalized pustular flare. And what treatments can be used to help manage GPP, and how effective are they? First thing that a physician has to do when faced with a patient with GPP is decide if they need to go in the hospital, to be quite honest. They can be very sick, and sometimes the best first place to take care of them is in the hospital because this can really behave much like a burn. We sometimes put them in an ICU, critical care facility, in order to treat them with all of the things we use to treat burns. So those things can be special kinds of bandages and special kinds of emollients, antibiotics if needed. And we also have to make sure that it is actually GPP to begin with. Sometimes it can be hard to tell from other things like a drug eruption or an infection. Second, we treat most forms of GPP with the same kind of medications that we treat plaque psoriasis. We want to pick a medication that's going to work quickly and work reliably. 
So oftentimes when people have very acute GPP, we'll treat them with a medication like cyclosporin. This is a, a medication that is very reliably effective for all kinds of psoriasis. And in the short run can be very rapid onset and effective. There are other medications in development that will be more targeted to GPP that I'll talk about in a minute. We can also use other medications used for plaque psoriasis, such as methotrexate, and many different biologics have been looked at in clinical trials for GPP, various different biologics, including medications like brodalumab, fuselcumab, and others that are already approved for plaque psoriasis. All of those medications vary in how effective they are for GPP, and some of them can be very effective, almost as effective as they are for plaque psoriasis, but that always depends on how a patient responds to them. And are there any other preventative measures that can be done to help avoid triggering GPP? The first thing to do is to identify what the triggers are. So if a patient has a known trigger, such as taking oral prednisone, for example, they would obviously want to avoid that medication. And also antibiotics that have been identified, they want to be very careful in identifying them as allergies or having adverse reactions to them. Obviously, if a patient has infection as a trigger, you can't always prevent getting an infection. So identifying that you have an infection early and watching for signs of change with the skin is important so that you can and jump on treatment of both the skin and the infection at the same time. Also, as I said before, patients who have plaque psoriasis, not GPP as a rule, but plaque psoriasis can develop generalized pustular psoriasis because of prednisone or systemic steroids. And I think all patients with plaque psoriasis should avoid oral prednisone, oral steroids, or IV steroids if they can. Sometimes we have to use them because of another condition, and sometimes we have to use them at low dose for psoriac arthritis. But I think if a provider says, I want to treat your plaque psoriasis with prednisone, that should be avoided because we have more than 15 other ways to treat psoriasis that are all safer and far less likely to trigger GPP. So you mentioned a second category of pustular psoriasis known as pommel plantar pustular psoriasis, which affects the hands and feet. This is a small body surface area critical to functioning in day-to-day life. Can you elaborate on quality of life and what advice you would offer your patients to help discuss this impact with their family, friends, and even their physician? The second category of pustular psoriasis known as palmar plantar pustular psoriasis is actually very life-altering. You're right, it is a small body area on the palms and soles, but if you have pustules there, which then will often turn into erosions where the skin is actually just raw or fissured, that's very problematic. It has a tremendous impact on the quality of life. So even though it's a very small area, if a patient has palmar plantar pustular psoriasis, I think it's really important to express that this is very impactful, that this is life altering, because sometimes people don't take it as seriously because it's a small body surface area. But imagine if your feet had a bunch of blisters on them, you wouldn't be able to walk. Usually when we get blisters because of friction, they resolve in a few days. People with palmar plantar pustular psoriasis have this as 
something day to day that can be cyclical even and very challenging to treat. So you, I think it's really important that you make it known how challenging it can be to function and to make sure that as you're selecting therapy, that it's tailored and that it's effective so that you can function. And what therapies are more commonly used to treat pommel plantar pustular psoriasis, which is also known as PPP? Are they similar to those used for generalized pustular psoriasis? We can treat GPP with pretty much all of the same therapies that we treat plaque psoriasis. All of them have been tried for GPP pretty much, and they all can work with varying success. And I think the same thing is true for palmar plantar pustular psoriasis. The question is, what is kind of our first line, second line, third line? And for PPP, first thing to do is, number one, just see if there's a trigger, right? If you can remove that. So if you happen to be a smoker and you have PPP, that might be one thing to avoid is smoking because that may, in fact, help PPP. We often will use oral agents that are what we call old school oral agents, such as cyclosporin, acetretin, and methotrexate to treat palmar plantar pustular psoriasis. We can also use biologics, and many of the biologics have been used successfully for PPP. However, some of them have been known to trigger PPP, and so I try to avoid certain ones. For example, anti-TNF agents. These are etanercept, adalimumab, infliximab, Although some patients may respond, many of them will actually get worse when you use that class of drug. So I try to avoid that class of drug because it can cause pustular psoriasis on the hands and feet to get worse. And could combination therapy be an option to treat PPP? Absolutely. We frequently will combine therapies to optimize treatment. For example, sometimes we will treat patients with acetretin, which is effective for pustules, but it doesn't always get people completely clear. So sometimes we'll add other things like phototherapy or we'll add topicals. We will often combine methotrexate with biologics, for example. So yes, all those things are on the table and it's often a challenge to kind of figure out what's gonna be the right combination. And on the flip side, should any treatments be avoided for PPP? Well, as I said before, I think everyone should try to avoid systemic steroids for PPP or GPP. I think that they can sometimes cause people to improve, but then as soon as you remove them, the PPP will flare, and then you get into this kind of nasty cycle. Other things I've just mentioned would be an anti-TNF agent if it's triggered it in the past, especially in people who have underlying rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, or inflammatory bowel disease, that class of drug might need to be avoided. And would you classify generalized pustular psoriasis and plantar pustular psoriasis as difficult to treat? GPP and PPP are both challenging to treat. When patients come in the door and they have plaque psoriasis, maybe called moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, we have 11 biologics and four oral agents can be used to treat plaque psoriasis because they all have FDA and EMA indications for them. This is not the case for GPP and PPP. Not a lot of agents have been tested strictly for these two conditions in clinical trials in rigorous fashion, not to the same degree that our biologics did for plaque psoriasis. And part of it is just as I was saying before, a lot of times these 
disorders just don't respond in a predictable fashion to meds that we have, such as a biologic. With plaque type psoriasis, if I put a patient on any biologic, name any of the 11 we have available, their psoriasis is pretty predictably going to respond to a certain degree. With GPP and PPP, it's not so much the case. The only drug I think that is pretty reliable is cyclosporin. Most people will get some clearance for GPP or PPP with that drug. Problem is it's not a good long-term drug. So we always have to find something else to go forward with long-term. So can you provide an update about any compounds currently in clinical trials for generalized pustular psoriasis and palmoplantar pustular psoriasis? Are there any potential treatment options on the horizon? Yes, there's actually a lot of activity in the clinical trial space for treating both GPP and PPP. So with the identification of the gene that I was mentioning before, what we call interleukin 36 RA, which is the receptor antagonist, or IL36RA, the gene that encodes that particular protein when it has a mutation in it is what can cause GPP. And even some people with PPP have that genetic abnormality too. So after that was discovered, it triggered quite a lot of drug development. And now what we know is that if you have a defective IL36RA, we can somewhat replace that with a biologic. So basically a drug that functions in place of that abnormal cytokine. So there are a couple of drugs that are being investigated for both GPP and PPP. One is called Spisolimab and the other is called ANB019, two different companies pursuing these products. They both are what we call interleukin-36 receptor antagonists, and they work in that pathway. So they're in different stages of development. What we know about spesolimab is if you give patients one IV dose at the time that their GPP is flaring, that the that almost the entire group of patients, and I believe it was all of them at week four, were either clear or almost clear. And even within a few days to a week, many of them had rapid clearing of their GPP. So we know that this drug has great promise and that company is going forward with phase two and likely into phase three trials for GPP. It appears to be quite safe. For PPP, spisolimab as well as AMB019 are being investigated as well. And those studies are also moving forward in phase two, headed into phase three as well. And would you say that there's a trend towards identifying treatment for more difficult to treat psoriasis like GPP and PPP? Yes, actually, there's a lot of interest in trying to fill the gaps that we see in treating psoriatic disease. So we've just been talking about various new treatment options for GPP and PPP. And we really are very hopeful that the drug development happening in the space will help patients that have either GPP or PPP. And along those same lines, I mean, there's other kinds of more difficult to treat psoriasis, such as non-pustular palmar plantar psoriasis or difficult to treat plaque psoriasis on the scalp or in the genital area. So there are definitely new trials that are addressing these. Uh, One example might be 
the topical drug reflumolast, which is being investigated as a, a topical non-steroid option. It's actually a very similar mechanism of action of what a premolast has, which is Otesla, except that it's topical. We don't have a lot of topical options. And one of the interesting things they did in their phase two program is they studied the outcomes of inverse psoriasis, which is when psoriasis is in body folds, such as the armpits and the groin. And that's the first time that we've seen inverse psoriasis be studied this early in a clinical trial for a new product. You can't really use topical steroids in those areas for very long or at high potency. So I do believe that the industry in general is really looking to fill the gaps. And there are a lot of them, GPP, PPP, pustular or not, inverse, scalp, genital, nail disease, all of those things are being looked at across the board. That's so good to hear. Sounds like the future holds a lot of promise for the treatment of those difficult to treat areas of psoriasis. So do you have any final comments you'd like to share with our listeners about GPP and PPP? Well, thank you for the questions and to all of those who are listening. GPP and PPP are relatively uncommon disorders. GPP is pretty rare. And if you're interested in participating in clinical trials in GPP, it would be important for you to reach out to your provider and see if there are any in your area. The trials for more uncommon disorders take longer to enroll and it's harder to find patients. And so far, this particular drug development program for GPP looks very promising. So if people are interested in that, I'd hope they could reach out to the National Psoriasis Foundation or to investigators or physicians in their area to see if there are any trials available. And the same is true for palmar plantar pustular psoriasis. If you have this disorder, there are trials that are either open or opening for this as well in the, in the near future. And I, I do think that patients with these disorders should have hope because there's a great deal of interest. We've kind of dialed in pretty well with plaque psoriasis over the last 20 years. We've tripled our choices for biologics for plaque psoriasis. And I think we're now heading into a lot of drug development in this space. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Duffin, for a really interesting update on GPP and PPP. It was a pleasure having you on Sound Bites today. You've really offered those that have this type of psoriasis a lot of hope. Thank you again for having me. If you have an interest in joining a clinical trial, such as Dr. Duffin mentioned, you can find potential clinical trials on the MPF website or sign up to be notified when a clinical trial becomes available at psoriasis.org forward slash clinical hyphen trials. If you would like more information about generalized pustular psoriasis or palmoplantar plantar psoriasis, contact the Foundation's Patient Navigation Center at 1-800-723-9166, option 1, or by email at education at psoriasis.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org 
or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.